Well, what is the normal Christian life? That's the great question that's before us in this series of Romans chapter 7, 7 through 24. We are asking if that is describing the normal Christian life. Now, that's a great question that is echoed down through the ages, as I mentioned in the last episode. I'm not going to go into much of a review of where we've come so far, other than to tell you, uh, if you have, are just now joining us, that that uh, this is a study to determine whether life under the law, struggling with sin in the flesh, is deemed to be the normal Christian life. And so far, we have concluded, thanks be to God, that it is not. That, that Paul is speaking of something other than the regenerate person there in Romans 7, 7 through 24. In fact, we've determined that Paul is speaking to those who know the law, whether they are Jewish Christians or whether they are Gentile uh, God-fearers, as they call them, uh, converts to Judaism, who are now in the body of Christ with the Jewish Christians. And therefore, Paul is addressing the need for them to walk in unity and to not divide upon ethnic guidelines. Uh, there are no such things as completed Jews or Messianic Jews or uh, Hebrews roots movements within Paul's mind. There's only one new mind, one new man in Jesus Christ. And the mind is the mind of Christ. Uh, there is no Jew, nor Gentile, nor male, nor female, and no bond or free. There's only one new creation in Jesus Christ. And so Paul is writing the letter to the Romans to uh, emphasize that point, that there's one gospel uh, for both Jew and Gentile. And it's one gospel uh, upon which the righteousness of God has been made re real, made known, a qualitative a degree of righteousness that was not available under the law. Although the law was just and is just and holy and good, it was not given in order to bring salvation. It was given to uh, deal with transgressions, to deal with uh, sin, to expose and reveal sin. And although in the flesh, without the Spirit, Instead of curbing sin, instead of helping the uh, adherent to resist sin, it actually uh, excites sin. It actually reveals and exposes sin and makes things even worse. Thus, the struggle of the person in Romans 7, 7 through 24, is a person who is attempting to relate to God on the basis of law apart from from the indwelling spirit. Romans 7, 7 through 24 could simply be uh, summarized as life without the spirit. Whereas in Romans 8, Paul is set forth clearly that the Christian is life in the spirit, with the spirit, by the spirit. So what we have here is a clear presentation of the new covenant aspect of the gospel which itself is the gospel. I mentioned to you last time that there is no gospel apart from the new covenant. The new covenant is the gospel, and the gospel is the new covenant. And while there are those today, who, since, especially since the Reformation, who have sought to convolute the old covenant into the new covenant, and even manufacture 
a a different covenant, a covenant of grace, an overarching covenant of grace, which is purely a fabrication of a theological system, uh, we must not go there. It's been the big struggle, big struggle since the resurrection and the outpouring of the Spirit at Pentecost to be able to understand and to grasp and to communicate and then most importantly live out this new life this new way of the Spirit, and not in the old way of the written code. But if people who have had the law for hundreds of years could not grasp life without it. And so the Judaizers, uh, those Jewish Christian leaders uh, who kept going throughout Asia Minor, following Paul around from church to church, insisting that the entry point into the people of God was still uh, the Jewish identity markers of the Sabbath, circumcision, uh, certain um, dietary laws, certain uh, need to keep certain days and feasts and observances. Uh, Paul responded to vigorously, even to the point of issuing a double apostolic curse. You know, if you read Galatians chapter 1, you think you come away with a little sobriety, a little, a little spiritual sobriety, thinking, boy, this is serious business here. The apostle is issuing a double apostolic curse upon those who would preach another gospel, and another gospel simply being that which uh, causes the believer, either before conversion or after conversion, to begin to relate to God on the basis of law instead of grace, on the basis of some form of works salvation as opposed to the finished work alone of Christ. This is a serious thing. And yet today, yet today, even in the evangelical world, there are those who find in the law some instrument by which they can get their own personal agenda met. They're not thinking of the interests of Christ. They're thinking of the interests of their budget. And so they will uh, put upon uh, those believers for whom Christ died and bled and became a curse for them. They will tell them that they must tithe, for example, Malachi chapter 3. They are still under the blessing and curse of the law when it comes to giving. Blessing, forgiving, and a curse on your finances if you do not. There are those who still teach that a Sabbath is required, that Sunday is a Sabbath, that you should not spend time recreating. You you should not spend time writing letters to family. You should spend time in prayer and study and preparing to return for the Sunday evening Sabbath service. Even the late, great Martin Lloyd-Jones rebuked his people for spending time writing letters to family on Sundays instead of spending time uh, meditating and reading their Bibles and, and, and preparing for the evening service. This is how insidious it is. This is how important it is for you and I to be clear about what covenant we are under. I want to emphasize that the new covenant of the Spirit that was consecrated by nothing less than the blood of Jesus, his own blood as our high priest at the cross, 
is the fulfillment of all previous biblical covenants. Very important. Let me say it then one more time. The new covenant, consecrated by the blood of Jesus and empowered by the outpouring of the Spirit at Pentecost, is the fulfillment of all previous biblical covenants. The Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant at Sinai, the Davidic covenant. So that in Jesus Christ, all things are fulfilled. The law and the prophets are utterly, absolutely, permanently, without reservation, fulfilled. So that those who are in Christ Jesus, and wonder upon wonders, those who are in Christ Jesus have been set free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, Paul says, uh, because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that, again, wonders upon wonders, the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Think of that. Think of the glory of the new covenant. The average Christian today still thinks they're under some form of law. Conceptually, they believe and they understand the importance of grace. They certainly understand the necessity of faith. And they would never deny that Christ's cross was important, was, was necessary. But what they live, where they live experientially is still under law, still under primarily human rules. But those two, again, who convolute the old covenant into the new covenant. And Paul says, those are not ministers of the gospel. Now think of the implication that I just made here. Not me, but the text itself. Because the last time we were together, I spoke to you about the, the nature of the new covenant ministry. And so we've taken a departure, a short detour from Romans chapter 8 to speak to the ministry of the new covenant because Paul is referring to the fact that we have this life in the Spirit in Romans chapter 8, and that although we do have this life in the Spirit, we're no longer in the realm of the flesh. We are now in the realm of the Spirit, and it's by the Spirit that we cry, Abba, Father, and that the Spirit that we have received does not make us slaves so that we live in fear again, but that we've been brought uh, we've received our adoption to sonship and thereby cry, Abba, Father. Think of the familial intimacy that that statement represents. Abba, Father. Nonetheless, it's important that we understand more fully what the New Covenant ministry is. And we began last time with the character of New Covenant ministers. We could put it this way. We need to know who are genuine, authentic ministers of the gospel. If you if you go on YouTube, for example, talk about a circus. Talk about a three-ring circus. Everybody and their pet monkey has a, 
um, YouTube channel. Now. And I don't mean to sound unkind, but I, I, you can't help but be overwhelmed when you go on YouTube looking for information. I mean, type in, for example, Second Corinthians chapter 3 in YouTube, and you'll get 40 or 50 videos of people giving you 17 different positions on that point. And you'll get dispensationalists and covenant theologians and, and um, Calvary Chapel Pentecostals and 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 everybody's got a shtick. Everybody's got a thing going on. But it's really difficult to find any genuine, thorough, biblical teaching uh, of a sober mind on YouTube or on social media. So it's a platform. I realize there's some value in it, but, but we have to look to the text. We can't look to social media for our guidance in our spiritual growth and our health. So the last time we were together, I spoke with you about how that the New Covenant ministers themselves, of whom Paul and his associates were, were unlike those who peddle the word of God for profit. Instead, they don't need, uh, Paul said, I, we don't need letters of commendation. We don't need man-made credentials. That uh, the letters of commendation and the credentials that that he has and he he and his associates are the transformed lives of those to whom they minister, and that is such an important this point of discernment. Uh, you can look at any congregation. You can tell whether or not you have a genuine minister of the gospel by the quality and the transformation of the lives that the people who are under that teaching under that ministry that teaching and that evangelistic ministry, uh, are experiencing. Are they growing in the image of Christ? Are they being equipped for the work of the ministry? Or is the ministry being usurped by the clergy? Are they maturing? Are they growing? Are they, is Christ being formed in them? Or is Christ still an abstract uh, concept to them? Uh, and the minister is representing and standing in the stead of Christ, especially if there's some kind of an ordained priesthood or something. So we want to be clear that the um, true gospel minister is a minister of the new covenant, the new covenant of the Spirit, the new covenant of the Spirit that gives life and not of the letter. So Paul says that he and his associates are not like those who peddle the word of God, but speak before God with his sincerity as those sent from God, which is an important point too. Pulpits throughout the land are filled with men who have not been sent by God. They may have been sent by their uh, seminary. They may, may have been funded by student loans. <laughs> they may have even been ordained by their denomination. But that doesn't mean that they're sent from God because, once again, let me stress, the leading credential of any minister of the gospel is the transformed lives of those to whom he is ministering. Because the gospel is a gospel of transformation. The gospel of the new covenant is a gospel of transformation. And so Paul says, we don't need your letters. Our confidence is from God. And he says, not that we are any competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, 
A, a genuine minister of the gospel is not somebody who looks to their own natural gifts and talents and abilities and charismatic personality. They look instead to God for their confidence, for their competence, and for their sufficiency. And so he says in verse 6 then, He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. So here we have two contrasting ministries in Second Corinthians chapter 3. We have ministers who are ministers of life and ministers who ultimately are ministers of death. The letter kills, kills, but only the Spirit gives life. So what do we mean by the letter kills? That's an important question. What we mean by that is that even the Word of God, apart from the Spirit, can become a set of rules, can become a precept upon precept, line upon line, so that we use it as an intellectual club on people, or we use it, we reduce it to a set of laws to be obeyed, a set of rules to be observed, a point-by-point -point line on a confession, instead of the guidance that we need as we learn to walk in the Spirit. And so the letter kills. Basically, the letter is anything apart from the Spirit. Millions of people do attempt to read the Bible without the guidance and illuminating ministry of the Holy Spirit. First of all, they don't understand it. Secondly, they'll pervert it and twist it, and be, it'll become something other than the word of life to people because it is the Spirit alone who animates the word of God and brings life. So you cannot separate the word of God from the work of the Spirit. And any attempt to do to to do to do so, excuse me, and any attempt to um, treat the word of God apart from utter, absolute reliance upon the Spirit is a folly. It is a return to the letter that kills. So Paul is very clear that he, as a minister of the new covenant, is synonymous with being a minister of the Spirit that gives life. So now let's look today at what that life looks like in contrast to the ministry of the letter. And we'll begin that in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 7. Quote, Now if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone, speaking of course of the Ten Commandments, the law that was engraved upon stone at Sinai, if that came with glory, so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, transitory though it was, very important word, transitory, whatever that translation is in your Bible, underline it, transitory, the law was given as a temporal measure. The law was never intended to be given to God's people as a permanent measure. Even the glory of the law was transitory. Will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? So we are talking about, under the new covenant, a greater quality of righteousness, a greater glory of a covenant. Verse 9, If the ministry that brought condemnation was glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? 
Let me just comment here that the average Christian struggles with condemnation. The average Christian is a religious neurotic. And they hope that God loves them. They hope that in the final analysis, it'll prove true that Jesus does love them, that he did give himself for them. But in the interim, they're so laden down with human rules, so laden down with convoluted covenants that they're struggling to tithe on their 10% of their gross income. They're struggling to keep Sunday night Sabbath. They're struggling to do this, that, or the other thing so they can prove themselves to be a Christian, that they really have lost any sense of joy. They're still struggling with this underlying uh, nagging sense of condemnation from the ministry. So someone who's not a genuine minister, that is to say, someone who's not a minister of the new covenant of the Spirit, the Spirit that gives life, uh, is going to ultimately bring a, a, a horrible, tormenting sense of condemnation into your Christian life. There's going to be a nagging emptiness, a nagging doubt that haunts you under the ministry of the minister of the letter. And not to mention the fact that you don't you do not have glory, you don't feel any sense of God's glory in your life, or the righteousness that is so necessary for you to feel and experience your um, access to God. Christ died so that you could be made righteous. Christ died. He, he was made sin. He was made sin, it says later in 2 Corinthians 5. Let me read that. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become what? The righteousness of God. So, beloved, if you are struggling with some nagging sense of guilt, some nagging sense of not measuring up, if some nagging sense of condemnation, let me just assure you, that is not of God. Let go of it. Let go of it. He says in verse uh, 17 of chapter 5 of Second Corinthians, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, including the condemnation and the fear thereof. The new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. There's another characteristic of genuine gospel ministry. It's a ministry of reconciliation, not condemnation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ. Now listen to this. Not counting people's sins against them. Let me read that again not counting people's sins against them. So much for having to preach the law to the poor, guilty sinner before you can preach the gospel. We have the ministry of reconciliation, not the ministry of condemnation. Ours is a ministry by which God is not imputing their sins to them any longer, not counting people's sins against them. Think of that. What a statement. When was the last time you heard somebody mention that from the pulpit? And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. 
We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. That was my point a moment ago. If you're still struggling with some sense of religious guilt, some sense of condemnation, some sense of nagging doubt, let go of it. God has reconciled you in his Son. Be reconciled to God. For God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. Your past, present, and future sins have been laid on him at the cross. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness, says the apostle. For what was glorious has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory. And if what was transitory came with glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts? So once again, the old covenant is obsolete now. It has fulfilled its purpose. It was transitory in its purpose. And it was glorious. It was a wondrous thing that God would make his will known to his people. And while they couldn't keep it and did not keep it, it was nonetheless glorious. But it wasn't a glory that is worthy to be compared to the glory of the new covenant. It was transitory. And the glory of the new covenant is permanent. How much greater is the glory of that which lasts? I know a lot of Christians who think it's somehow slighting God to think of the Old Covenant as um, obsolete or no longer in effect, as being fulfilled in Christ. They think it's somehow uh, that God is pleased with us when we try to relate to him on the basis of law. But let me just tell you, he's not. He's not. He's given one means of intercession, and that is his son. In the sufficiency of his sacrifice. The sufficiency in the fullness and the completeness of his resurrection as affected by the Spirit at Pentecost. So don't go back to that which was transitory. Don't return to the glory. Don't try to find the glory in the law. R.C. Sproul used to uh, pastor a church, the late R.C. Sproul, in, in uh, Orlando, uh, Florida. I think it was St. Andrews. And in the entryway, there was a, um, a large mural of the law. I think it was the, the scroll of the law. So when you walked into the foyer of St. Andrews, you looked up and you saw this large scroll of the law. And I heard him once say that he... They put that there to remind Christians when they walked in the door of the law, of the law of God. I know that sounded really pious. I know that there were other pastors in the audience when he said that, that grimaced, and God bless him for it. <laughs> we have to lose this, this obsession with relating to God on the basis of law. It is not God's will for you. God's will for you is to relate to him on the basis of his son, 
and his finished work on your behalf alone. Verse 12, Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We are not like Moses, who put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away. But their minds were made dull. For to this day, the same veil remains when the Old Covenant is read. They can't see the purpose of the Old Covenant. They hear the words, they listen to the readings, People sit through liturgies every week and they hear the readings, especially if they're from the Old Covenant, and they don't understand what they're hearing. But their minds were made dull. For to this day the same veil remains when the Old Covenant is read. It has not been removed. Because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. The person in Romans 7, 7 through 24 is looking at the law with a veil. It covers their eyes. It covers their heart. They cannot understand why they can't keep it. Even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit. So when we speak of the Spirit, when we speak of the Spirit, the, the new covenant of the Spirit, we're speaking of the new covenant of the Lord. When we say salvation is of the Lord, we can only say that with confidence if we are speaking within a new covenant context. Salvation is of the Lord always throughout redemptive history. But salvation is of the Lord inasmuch that he has made the way. He has created a new way of the Spirit. Not the way of the written code, but the new way of the Spirit. So when we speak of the Spirit, we're speaking of the Lord, of course. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God in three persons. Now, the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled faces, contemplate the Lord's glory. Remember, this glory is permanent. We, with unveiled faces, contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. This is a cause for pause. Because once again, we've just heard very clearly what is the normal Christian life. The normal Christian life of struggling under the law and dealing with the flesh and the slavery to sin is absurd. We've, we've determined that that is not the normal Christian life. So having said that, put that aside now. What Paul has given us is a clear picture here of what the normal Christian life is. Let me read it again. Verse 18, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And we all, who with unveiled faces, 
Think of that. Transparent faces. Contemplate the Lord's glory. Are being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Let me say it this way. I want to remind you that the most important thing to understand about what God is doing in your life has nothing to do with your new job or with finding a spouse, getting married, having a family, your career. What God is doing in your life has nothing to do with uh, your church attendance, has nothing to do with anything else other than the primary. Those are all fine things, but they are not the primary paramount work of God in your life. The paramount work of God in your life is to conform you into the image of His Son. Period. The eternal purpose of God to create a people who share His holiness, worthy of His presence, and who share their holiness, His holiness in their relationships with one another was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Let me say that again. God's eternal purpose, as set forth in the letter to the Ephesians, of to create a people who share in His holiness, who reflect His character, particularly in their relationships with one another, that purpose was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And now in all of those who are in Christ. So that we are now being conformed into the image of Jesus. We who were once in Adam and bore his image, the image of a rebel, the image of a mind that is hostile, was hostile to God, did not support, did not submit, I should say, to the law of God, nor could it do so. We are now in Christ, the, the obedient one, the one who displayed humility, obedience, obedience to the point of death, and did so out of love for the Father and love for his people. We are being conformed into the image of Christ in thought, word, and deed, from glory to glory. So Paul goes on then in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, which is everything that I try to do every time I'm visiting with you on, on this episode, episodes like this, to set forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Remember, only the Holy Spirit can convert a sinner. Our marketing programs, our mood music, our slick marketing, our uh, advertising, our... Um, uh, even eloquent preaching cannot convert a sinner. Only the 
Holy Spirit can convert the sinner. The gospel is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Please make a note there in your Bible. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 4. He just described the gospel. He just set forth the nature of the gospel, the new covenant gospel, and, and its effects on us. So that they cannot see the light of the gospel. What gospel? The gospel that displays the glory of Christ. Not the glory of Moses, but the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The image of God has been shattered in Adam, has been restored in Jesus Christ, and is now being restored in you who are in Christ. Hallelujah. For what we preach is not ourselves, he says in verse 5, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Wouldn't that be great to have ministers of the gospel who don't preach themselves, who don't promote their career ambitions, who, pro who preach Jesus Christ and not themselves, and see themselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God, the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. The glory that Moses experienced with God on the mount, so that he had to put a veil over his face when he came down, was a transitory glory. The glory that's in the face of Christ is a permanent glory. And it's a glory that as we behold his face through our spiritual eyes until one day we do see him in, in person, that, that beholding Christ in the scripture through the ministry of the Spirit is transforming us. Let me read it again. And we all with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory which comes from the Lord <clears throat> who is the spirit excuse me so we have these two contrasting ministries I've told you today the ministry of the letter and the ministry of the spirit who gives life the ministry of Moses was a transitory glory. It was it was a, had a certain purpose for a certain time and has now been fulfilled. And that covenant is obsolete and has been wholly replaced by a holy new covenant, the covenant of the Spirit. So we no longer walk in the old way of the letter, nor do we struggle as does the man who's presented in Romans 7, 7 through 24, to relate to God on the basis of law without the Spirit. It only leads to despair. That's the point of Romans 7, 7 through 24. We must, as Christians, never seek to relate to God on the basis of law, but only on the basis of a transformed life by the Spirit. We who live by the Spirit must learn to walk by the Spirit. <clears throat> Excuse me. And so, 
we have this contrast. We are being transformed. We are being conformed into the image of Christ. There's no greater honor. There's no higher calling. There's no greater privilege than to become like Jesus. So as we close this series out in the next episode, I want to talk with you more then. We return to this fact that we uh, are still in a state of now and not yet. While all that I just said is true, we have yet to fully realize the full impact and the perfection of that redemption. For Paul goes on to say in verse 7 of 2 Corinthians 4, But we have this treasure in jars of clay, the show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. So we'll look at that more next time. We'll talk about what it means to be a jar of clay holding this incredible glory. And while we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. May the Lord strengthen you and comfort you, and may the Lord make these things clear to you, make these things real to you, so that you can recapture the joy and the delight and the glory of the normal Christian life. Amen.